to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Last week we talked about the word holiness. We talked about why it's important. We talked about how to pursue holiness without being holier than thou. And we talked about practical ways to pursue holiness. So if you happen to miss last week, go ahead, hop on www.vlchurch.com and pick up that message uh, and listen to it this week. Put it in your car, download it on your iPad, whatever, or your iPod, your iPad, whatever you got to listen to, and uh, check that out. This week we're going to talk about another word, a word that's uh, deeply ingrained in our Christian experience. Holiness is certainly one of those. Probably the most synonymous word with Christianity that's out there. I, I would say the most synonymous symbol is the cross, but perhaps the most synonymous word in Christianity would be the word gospel. Gospel, which is an old English word, like Geoffrey Chaucer English, like old English, like you'd be talking to an English person and not have an idea what they're saying. But gospel is a translation of the Greek word euangelion. And if you've ever heard of a eulogy or a good word, that you, that you part is good, and that the angelion is the message, the good message. And if you think angelion sounds sort of like angel, yeah, good message, and an angel is a messenger. And so the good news is what the gospel means, and, and, and gospel is just an old English way of saying the good news. I don't think there's a word more synonymous with Christianity than the gospel, and one of the most common compliments that I get as a preacher, as a pastor, is when you're filing out of the service or when you're leaving the church after a, after a sermon, somebody will, will look at me many Sundays and go, thank you for preaching the gospel. That's one of the most common compliments I get. But it's different than some of the other compliments I get. Like some of the compliments you get on your message is like, pastor, thanks for stepping on my toes this morning. Yeah, Thanks. Other people are like, thanks for just bringing the word this morning. We needed to hear that. That's exactly what God was speaking to me. But when people tell me thanks for preaching the gospel, all of a sudden their words become a little more like breathy and heavy. And it comes out something like this. Thanks for preaching the gospel. <laughs> like every, I don't know what that is. It's like this phenomenon that I've noticed. Like, like, like preaching the gospel. It just comes out in this breathy from this deep place in them. And you know, I, I, I don't say that to make fun of anybody this morning, but I say that because people who are, are relaying thanks for preaching the gospel are people who are saying, you preached today something that resounds so deeply inside of me, something that has affected me so personally that even when I speak about it, it, it just becomes even more breathy. And you know what? That's really the experience of people who have encountered Jesus Christ. That, that, that the relationship with Jesus that they have has, has taken root down inside of them and, and that it causes them to, 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 to be hallowed in a way towards God, to be excited in a way when they hear the truth about Jesus preached. It was certainly the experience of the people who walked and talked with Jesus on earth because as I mentioned, there's, a, there's no word more synonymous with Christianity than gospel. In fact, all of the writers of scripture and almost all of the writers of the New Testament, I should say, use this word to describe what the event was that was Jesus. It was the good news. If you were to look at the earliest written gospel, which is Mark, the one that we believe was written earliest after the death and resurrection of Jesus, it begins with the words, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he's saying, hey, what I'm going to tell you here is the good news about Jesus. 
Matthew starts relatively the same way when Jesus begins his ministry in Matthew chapter 4. It says Jesus went throughout Galilee preaching the good news or the gospel. And those things are synonymous in your Bible. I just want you to know when you're reading that, when it says good news, it's gospel. When it says gospel, it means good news. It's the exact same thing. It's just your translators deciding to do something different with it. Luke chapter 4, Jesus enters the synagogue, his hometown synagogue in the, in the village of Nazareth. And he walks in and he opens the scroll to Isaiah chapter 61. And what does he say? The Lord has anointed me to preach the good news. He's anointed me to preach the gospel. And lest you think that it's just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which happen to be known as the Gospels, unless you think it's just the narratives about Jesus' life, some people believe that Galatians was one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. Galatians doesn't even start unless the Gospels spoken about is spoken about in Galatians 1.6. Other people believe 1 Thessalonians is the first written Gospel. They start talking about the, or Paul starts talking about the gospel in 1 Thessalonians in verse 1 5. Unless you think Peter was out of the gospel range, Peter is talking about the gospel in chapter 4 of 1 Peter. So the gospel is synonymous with what happened in Jesus. And Jesus, of course, and his disciples saw his mission as fulfillment of God's good intentions for humanity. If you ever want to read some great Old Testament passages that'll just get your day started out well, Read about the good news that is foretold in Isaiah chapter 52 and 61. You can write those in your notes. Check those out this week when you're reading your Bible and having your quiet time. Isaiah chapter 52 and 61, they are verses that talk about what will happen when Jesus comes and begins to proclaim that good news. So what's this gospel summarized? What is it when we just sort of uh, uh, take it down to its most basic and essential level? What is the gospel? And I want to tell you that's tricky. It's tricky to sort of see if you can, you can narrow it down to a, to a phrase or a couple of words. Now, if you ask certain pastors of a certain age who went to certain seminaries, they would tell you that the gospel is, here, ready for it, justification by grace through faith, Right? How many of you have heard that, that phrase, justification by grace through faith? And that's the concept that Paul preaches throughout his epistles. This idea that we as human beings were sinners and therefore we needed to be justified. Because when we stood in God's court of law, if you will, God was going to send us away and our sentence was already, already going to be met. But we could not justify ourselves through God. We couldn't justify our actions to God. And therefore, we needed someone to justify us. And Jesus, in paying the penalty for our sins, allowed us to be justified by God. And it's by grace. That means it's a free gift. We don't do anything to be justified by Jesus. We don't do anything to stand in God's court of law and say, God, I am a sinner, but I'm with Jesus. Can I get out of here? that's really justification by grace, and then it's through faith. It's not of works. We don't, once again, do anything to receive this justification before God, the justification that gives us relationship with God and hope for eternity. We don't do anything except for believe on the name of Jesus Christ. That is what some people have often preached as the gospel. Now, if you ask many pastors today and people who have been through seminary in maybe the last 10 or 15 years, and you say, what's the gospel? They would say, the gospel is that the kingdom of God has come. That humanity was once at odds with God, 
We were at war with God. We were doing things our own way, and we were taking this world to hell in a handbasket. And now, through Jesus Christ, we've been reconciled to God, and we have the opportunity to redeem the world with him. We get to participate in God redeeming the world through Jesus Christ. The gospel is the kingdom of God. Now, here's the interesting part about this. When you talk about justification by grace through faith, that concept that so many of you raised your hand and said, yes, that's what I've been taught my whole life, Jesus only mentions that concept once in all of the Gospels. He asks a question, which man went home justified? The one who knew he was a sinner or the one who claimed he was not? Only one time. And interestingly enough, Paul, in all of his epistles in the New Testament, first and second Corinthians, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, first and second Thessalonians, he talks very sparingly about the kingdom of God. So what's the gospel? What's the gospel? Well, I want to tell you today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to break the suspense right now. I know you're waiting with bated breath. I'm going to yes, this is awesome. I love theology, you know. But I'm going to break the suspense. They're both the gospel. They're both the gospel. But it's important that we have a concept of the gospel because words have power. And the gospel that we preach as Victory Life is going to have a great effect on the people that we become and the church that we become. And I want to talk to you today about the gospel in terms of the way we preach it and the way we present it, because it will have a great effect on who we are and how we affect the world. Are you in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? Interestingly enough, this is one of the only passages in the entire New Testament that summarizes the gospel. In fact, some commentators say it's the only passage in the New Testament that summarizes the gospel. I don't know that I specifically believe that, but in, in essence, this is the only place that they would say that somebody goes, and this is the gospel, boom. All right, so let's read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 and following. Paul speaking to the Corinthian church. Now I remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which you also stand, through which you also are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the 12 disciples, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though a couple have died. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and then last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. All right, so that's what Paul says is the gospel. And of course, he is in the middle of a sequence of events talking about the resurrection. The idea that once we die and once everybody dies, there will be a moment that we are all raised imperishable to inherit eternal life. But Paul says a couple of instructive things, and they're going to they're gonna feed into the end of the message this morning about the gospel, but I, I, I want to just throw them out to you before we talk a little bit more about the passage, that Paul looks at the Corinthians church and says, there's a gospel that you've received, there's a gospel that you stand in, and there's a gospel that makes you saved. 
And those are the three things that the gospel should be working in your life. But here when Paul defines the gospel that he preached, strangely vacant are the words kingdom of God. And strangely vacant are the words justification by grace through faith. Those aren't here. When he says the gospel that I preach to you, he says what? That Jesus died and was buried and on the third day he rose again. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture and he was raised according to the same. That's the gospel. So what's Paul saying? Well, in essence, he's saying that the good news, the gospel's a narrative. It's a story. In fact, it's history. It's events that happen that have a lasting effect. It's that God stepped right into human history to right what was wrong, to offer humanity a chance chance at redemption. That in Jesus, God expunged the damning record of our sin and he gave us a new chance at life. Life, death, and resurrection are not a philosophical belief, it's history. That's the gospel. The gospel's history. The gospel is what God did in history. That's the good news. And just so you know, Paul says, God's so cool that he announced it ahead of time. That's why he says twice, in accordance with the scriptures, in accordance with the scriptures. Because here we have the entire story of the Old Testament leading up to this moment that Jesus Christ, Son of God, comes to earth. We have the fall of humanity and the calling of Abraham, the covenant, the development of the people of Israel, the sacrificial system, the covenant with Moses, the law, the failure of humanity to follow that law, and then boom, according to the scripture, Christ, the Messiah the anointed one. Jesus is the one who brings all of history together. That's the good news. And I say this to you today because we can sometimes grow so cold to the truth that we know. But the truth that we know is not some theological concept cooked up by men in togas. The truth that we know, the good news that we have is not some theological development that happened with some monks in robes. Nor is it some some way out concept that was developed by some opiated hermit in a cave. What we have is history. God stepping into history to change human history, to redeem human history, and to make it what it should be. So we can have deep thoughts and we can have theological convictions and we can have theological postulate or philosophical postulate one, postulate two, postulate three, conclusion. We can have that till we're blue in the face, but what we're really talking about when we talk gospel is Jesus. The event that was, is, and will be Jesus. Jesus is the kingdom of God. Jesus is justification by faith. Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. And Jesus is a forgiveness of sin. Jesus is the anointed one that's come from God. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Jesus is the bread of life that we need to partake in. Jesus is the light of the world. He's the hope for the nations. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the one who has defeated sin and death. That's who Jesus is. And what's really exciting is who Jesus will be. Because Jesus is our soon coming king. And Jesus is the one that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to. 
that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's who Jesus is, and that's who Jesus will be, and that's the gospel. You say, without, you just said a lot of things there, Pastor Matt. That, that's what I'm supposed to put in my belief statement? That, that when I talk to my friends about the good news that's come into my life, I'm supposed to say all those things? Why don't you add like Bright and Morning Star and the Rose of Sharon and just add, just get the whole thing together? Because <laughs> that's really going to affect my friends and coworkers if, if they just keep, but, but all of those are historical realities. All of those are the things that Jesus is and will be. All of, the thi- all of those things are the things that the Old Testament predicted, the Old Testament pointed to, the Old Testament alluded to that Jesus made happen. All of those things. Jesus is the center of the gospel. So you might ask, why does it so often then get boiled down to justification and the kingdom? Well, the truth is, justification by grace through faith is probably the best theological description of the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's why it gets boiled down. But guess what? We can't boil the gospel down to that because it's a concept, not a person. It's a concept. And though the concept has a historical reality behind it, we must point to the historical reality and then bring the concept underneath it to help people understand what that historical reality meant. And you say, why for your generation, Pastor Matt, as you mentioned in the open, why for a lot of the younger seminarians, people who have come through uh, schooling to be a pastor or a theologian, why do they focus so much on the kingdom of God? Why does that seem to be the description? Well, number one, there's, there's just a turning, I guess, and for some of you this will be interesting, and for some of you this will be a snore, but there's just a turning in theology where a lot of people are going, I- I'm, I'm more interested in the Gospels right now than I am in the Epistles. That's just happening with a lot of authors and a lot of influential folks. And Jesus doesn't preach a lot of justification by grace through faith. What does Jesus preach? The kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. And so, why the kingdom? Well, the kingdom speaks to our purpose. The kingdom speaks to what we're doing in life. Justification speaks to the fact that God has made a way for us to be reconciled to him. The kingdom speaks now through that reconciliation, we can join God and have a purposeful and meaningful life. So people are gravitating towards the kingdom. But do you see the dangers inherent in both if we reduce the gospel to those two concepts? If you reduce the gospel to justification by grace through faith, what can happen? Yes, I'm justified, I believe in Jesus, now I'm going to golf. That's not to put anybody down, especially, well, maybe you, Lowell. Anyhow, no, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm going to golf. I am justified because I believe in Jesus, and I said a prayer one day, I'm out. I'll go to church on Christmas and Easter, because those are the high holy days, and, but I'm not really going to be affected any further. And that's the danger if it's just a concept. What's the danger of it's, if, it's, if it's just the kingdom? The danger of if it's just the kingdom, I really don't need anything to do with God or the church or any of that. I just need to be a good person and do good works, and I am set. I'll help God redeem the world. I'm all about that. But I don't need any kind of extra stuff than that. I'm just doing good works, and I'm all set. Isn't it great that we have the entire New Testament? 
so that Paul can undergird the concept of who Jesus was and what he did with those concepts of justification by grace through faith. But Jesus preaches the kingdom and says, repent, turn your life around right now. I have work for you to do. We have the whole picture of who Jesus was and what he is if we take both of those concepts and we run with them. But I must warn you today, Jesus and the gospel is not about a concept, it's about a relationship. It's about a relationship. And you say, why did those people in the front right section amen? Why, why is that? They amen because people who shared the gospel, people who carried the gospel, people who embodied the gospel preached Jesus because they were affected by a personal relationship with him. People who just want to preach a concept can do that anywhere. People who just want to give you the philosophical postulate one, postulate two, postulate three conclusion, they can do that with anything in any part of life. But the gospel, as we mentioned, is something that captures people. The good news is that Jesus not only has been a historical reality through his life and his death and his resurrection, but Jesus has the power through the, through the uh, agency of the Holy Spirit to come into our lives and become a historical reality right now. That the supernatural side of human beings, the the spiritual side of human beings, the side of, of human beings that God designed us with, that had that hole that we didn't know how to fill it, Jesus comes into our lives and begins to fill it. And our spirit connects with the spirit of God. And all of a sudden, our relationship to Christ goes over and above church attendance and theological concepts. And then we want to carry the gospel. Then we want people to know Jesus. Then we start talking about how awesome Jesus is, and we talk a little less about growing the church. We begin to talk about what God has done in our lives rather than talk about how cool our church is and why you should come there. Some of you afterwards are going to go, Pastor Matt, you stepped on my toes. Because our goal here is not to grow the church. And our goal here is not to convince people how cool church is. What's our goal? To connect people to Jesus Christ. Guess what? When people like you and me carry the gospel, the church will grow. When people like you and me carry the gospel... People will think church is cool. What are we carrying to the world? What are we presenting to people? Concepts or Jesus himself? Where are you? Where is your relationship to God? Is it based in concepts and book learning? Or is it in a relationship to Jesus Christ, recognizing that you have a spirit and that God wants to connect to your spirit. And by the cross and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have been reconnected to God and have the opportunity to do that. I get the sense, just by the silence in the room, that either many of you go, yeah, I want to carry that gospel, or you're bored to tears. But I'm going to go with the first, or at least hope for it. And I'm going to tell you three ways that we can be carriers of the gospel to a world who desperately needs Jesus. Let's go back to the words of Paul at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and use those three concepts to inform ourselves. 
One, he says the gospel which you have received. What's the gospel that they received? Concepts or Jesus? If you read the rest of the passage, they received Jesus Christ into their lives. You must receive Jesus, not just a concept. Jesus is the one to be followed. You know, I might look at you and go, how did you receive Jesus? And you'll say, I'll tell you how I received Jesus, Pastor Matt. I needed to say a prayer by which I admitted I was guilty of sin and alienated from God, but that Jesus paid my debt to God, and I can come freely now into the presence of God. That is how I received Jesus. But I want to tell you there's more to receiving Jesus than just that prayer. Because we're told in the scriptures that we can believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, but there's one more element to receiving Jesus. Do you know what that is? Confessing that he's Lord. That we're receiving not just a get-out-of-jail-free card, we're receiving a new way of life in his name. We're not just worried about heaven, we're worried about life. And that we have been living as Lord of our lives up until the moment that we receive Jesus Christ. And the moment that we receive him, we transfer lordship of our life to him. Because he's the resurrected Lord and we're not. We transfer lordship, the ability to be master of our lives, to the Son of God. Now, when I was growing up, there was a, there was a, there was a, a guru. He's still around. His name's John Maxwell. He's a Christian and he, he writes all these books on leadership. And John has this concept of level one, two, three, four, and five leadership. And most leaders are just leaders at level one. That means that people follow them because they have a position. And we can look at Jesus and go, yep, yep, Jesus, you're the boss. I'll do it because you said so. But there's no relationship there. And if it's just because we just sort of say, yeah, he, he's, he's the boss, we're not quite going to follow him. Now, I'm not going to bore you with levels two, three, four, and, and go all the way there, but I, I, I just want to talk to you about five for just a minute. Five says people follow you because of what you represent. Five says people follow you because of what you represent. And number four, a level of leader, says people follow you because the way that you've changed their life. Jesus is a level four and five leader because he has the power to change lives and then we follow him because of what he represents. We follow him because we place the highest value on what he represents. We sang about it today. On the altar of our praise, let there be no higher name than Jesus, Son of God. Meaning, what Jesus represents is the thing that I will praise most in the world. Think about all the things that we praised this week, all the things that we talked about. Praised yourself for something you accomplished. Praised a meal that you made that was great. Praised a design that you like. Praised a show that made you happy. But Jesus is the one who is Lord and worthy of all our praise because of the historical reality of what he has done and because of the historical reality of what he's done in our lives. We have to receive Jesus as Lord Second, Jesus must be where we make our stand. And I want to tell you today, so many of us have an identity, but it has nothing to do with our relationship to Jesus Christ. We may have an identity that we go to a church, and we may have an identity that we do some good works, but where is Jesus in that? Where's the Lord? Where's the God who says that he wants to connect to us through his Holy Spirit and counsel us and guide us and lead us 
who wants to be the rest for the weary, the hope for our lives, who wants to be the center of our joy. Where's that God? Are we making our stand in our relationship to Jesus Christ, or are we just being blown about by the waves of life because we don't have much of a relationship with him at all? You know, there's a word that I haven't mentioned yet in this sermon, but it's a moment to mention it, and the word is love. The word is love. That these things, receiving Jesus as Lord, and standing and finding our identity in him, are based in our love for him. Based in our love for who he is, what he represents, and what he's done in our lives. Of course, Romans 5, verse 8 says that Christ demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. That means Jesus died for you when you were most petulant, when you were most unlovable, when you were furthest from doing anything redemptive in your life, Jesus died for you, and he cared about you, and he loved you. That's the type of thing that makes us want to love him and serve him in return. That's why Paul says that he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That we might, be, we might remember, that we might be real clear on this fact, that what alienated us from God was our sin, but what brought us back from God was Jesus. God was back to God was Jesus. That's who Jesus was. The one who gives us hope in life and joy and peace. That's who we stand with. If we want to carry the gospel to the world, we can't be carrying concepts. We need to be carrying him. And finally, we need to remember that we need it saved. It's Jesus that makes us saved. It's Jesus who said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man may come to the Father except by me. That the historical reality of the cross and death and resurrection was an exclusive historical reality. That no one else died to save us. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Justin Bieber. No one (laughs) else died to save us. Jesus did, and we needed saved. Someone had to justify us before God. Someone had to do something so that we could return to God's team, to God's side, and live in his kingdom. Jesus did that. Jesus looked at the Pharisees. They were people in the New Testament who followed the law of Moses near perfect. They did everything right. And Jesus looked at them and he says, guys, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you'll find eternal life. And it's them that testify on my behalf, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. You refuse to come to me and have life. He's saying to those folks, you can have all the concepts in the world right. You can have all the right doctrine, all the right beliefs, and you can even have the right dogma. But if you don't have a relationship with me, you're missing life. You're not saved. His relationship with me is real life. It's true life. It's abundant life, John 10.10. You need me, not a concept. You know, people often say, what's the vision for the church? What are we doing next? What's the the deep thing that the Lord told you while you were up on the mountain? You know, the vision for the church is very simple that individuals would encounter Christ and thereby carry the gospel to a world that needs it. The methods, the modes, the means of doing those things, those change over time. But this does not. This remains. That people need to be connected with the life-giving name of Jesus Christ. 
And then when somebody looks at me and goes, thanks for preaching the gospel, it's because he's changed them. He's made them new. And they want people to know that he has the power to change them, the power to make them new, the power to give them a new life. Received, stand, and saved. That's what Jesus wants to do in you. That's what he wants to do in you. He wants to become Lord. He wants to become the central aspect of your identity. And he wants you to just put your hope and your trust and your faith in him that he's provided eternal life through you, for you through his death and resurrection on the cross. We need to be people who connect to our Lord more than people who connect to our concepts. God will bless that. And in that way, we can carry the gospel to a world that so desperately needs it. Will you bow and pray with me? Can we just have a spirit of reverence in this place? And please keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed today. We're just going to pray for a few moments. Heavenly Father, we just come to you today. We ask that as you stir our hearts that we would respond. We pray, Lord, that we wouldn't keep you in a box and make our faith more of a religion. But instead, we would recognize, Jesus, that you're calling each one of us to a relationship with you. That the Son of God has created a way for us to have a relationship where he's the best boss we ever had. Where he's the best friend we ever had he's the only Savior we'll ever have. God, I pray today, even in this moment, you'd call people to that relationship with you. They need you, Lord Jesus. Because there's people in this room, they know you're a level four and a level five leader. You've changed their lives and you've given them something to work for that's only going to be come to fruition, Lord heavens. Lord, I pray today that as your spirit calls us to the name of Jesus, we respond. We respond. If you're here today and you say, you know what, Pastor Matt, I've been raised on the concept of going to church, or maybe I'm in a church for one of the very first times. I've been in classes, I've heard concepts I've listened to TV preachers. I've read articles. I consider myself informed on the topic. But I have never received Jesus. I've never asked him to wipe away my sins, to make me new, to become my Lord. And I want today to be the first step in that journey. If that's you today, and you know God's knocking on your heart's door and saying, Take the journey with me. Put your faith in my son. I'm just going to invite you just to stand in this place right now and just say, God, I'm serious. I don't have you stand so that anybody can look at you. Our eyes are closed. I have you stand so you can say, God, I'm serious today. I want to follow your son, Jesus. If that's you today, just stand right where you're at. Nobody's looking around. You're declaring it to him. Lord Jesus, I pray today that if we're that person who you're calling, if you're that person 
who we're reaching out to, Lord. That rather than us receiving us, receiving you into our hearts today, that you'd receive us into yours. And Lord Jesus, I pray for the person today who your spirit is calling. I pray for that person today. May they reach to you and say, Lord Jesus, I don't understand much of this, but I understand one thing that I need a relationship with you. I'm starting it today. Forgive me of my sins. Begin to make me new. I want you to change my life. Perhaps you're in this place today and you say, Pastor Matt, I have been walking away from my Savior and my Lord. I've been walking away from my relationship with Jesus and I need to walk back. I need to come back. I need to serve him because I know who he is and I know that he's good and that my life should be his. And today I want to take a stand and say, God, I'm returning to you. If that's you today, I'm just going to ask you, stand right where you're at, not for me, but for God. Say, God, I'm coming back to you. I want a relationship with Jesus Christ, not just a loose affiliation to the church. Just stand and make it clear to him today. You pray your own words to him. You pray your own words to him. And I'll just give you the time to do that. everybody stand in this place we're just going to sing one more song today I just invite you to take in those words to make Jesus the very center of your existence to give him praise today and to remind yourself who is Lord the one that you've received the one that you stand in and the one who makes you saved on the altar of our praise
more than enough. We stand in faith believing today, Lord, that you have saved us, you have raised us, and that life with you is better than life without you. So we sing this together. On the altar of our praise, let there be no higher name than Jesus, Son of God. You laid down your perfect life. You are the sacrifice, Jesus, Son of God. You are. today let's declare that you declare that don't just sing with the band make it real in your life today just the voices today make that your prayer make that your prayer and on the altar of our praise let there be no higher name Jesus Son of